I gotta tell you the truth, folks. You have to stand in awe, in awe of the all-time champion of false promises and exaggerated claims, religion. No contest. No contest. Religion has actually convinced people that there's an invisible man living in the sky who watches everything you do every minute of every day. And the invisible man has a special list of ten things he does not want you to do. And if you do any of these ten things, he has a special place full of fire and smoke and burning and torture and anguish where he will send you to live and suffer and burn and choke and scream and cry forever and ever till the end of time. But he loves you. He loves you, and he needs money. He always needs money. He's all-powerful, all-perfect, all-knowing, and all-wise. Somehow, just can't handle money. Religion takes in billions of dollars, they pay no taxes, and they always need a little more. Obviously, that wasn't me. That was the intro. We used one of those every week. George Carlin has about a three to five minute rant on religion and the foolishness of people who believe in the God idea. And so what I did is I took that and uh, with some expert editing, I might add, took out words that weren't going to be necessarily edifying for the Sunday morning audience <laughs> and spliced those into five different little diatribes. That really was a combination of the first two. And I just answered them every week. And I thought to myself, you know, so many of us are constantly silenced or, or we're, we're, we're shrink back in moments when God wants us to step up and, and be people that bring light and hope and truth. But when a guy like that who is winsome, a guy like that who says some things, we go, you know what, that is a little bit odd. That God says you must do these things, and if you don't, he's going to send you to hell, but he loves you. When presented that way, it seems very overwhelming. How many of us have watched a Bill Maher back when he was on ABC, or maybe you throw him on now on HBO sometimes, with the politically incorrect, and you stop and you ask yourself, what would I say if I was in that seat in this moment? And you just go, I'll tell you what, I don't ever want to be in that seat. And the, part, the, the truth is, is it's not just that seat that you're avoiding, it's the conversations that you have opportunities to be salt and light in every day around practice fields, in hallways, in workplaces, in neighborhoods, that because we're not ready, we are shrinking back. And what happens when we shrink back is that other ideas go forward. We are thrilled to be here today with you. And we have brought together, and I wanted to say this again, we haven't really brought together, God's brought together an incredible group of men Someone asked me, how did this happen? And I go, you know, we don't really even know how it happened. It started with, um, I think, you know, Bill was coming in town to do something. We said, well, why don't we try and do something a little bit bigger? And it was almost like two friends said, hey, let's get together and, you know, let's, let's, let's shoot some hoops. And so we said, good, let's call some guys. And all of a sudden, LeBron and Kobe and Dwight Howard, <laughs> Dwayne Wade, they go, hey, we'll throw in with you guys. And so here we are, our little pickup game of apologetics today. And it will be quite a ride. Apologetics. Okay, let me just say this, because we come from all different spectrums. Since Braun's not here, I'll help you with a simple term. 
when you hear the word apologetics, you ask yourself, what's that mean? At, at first blush, if you don't understand it, it, it you, you, the transliteration of apologetics in our language is what? What word sounds like that in our English language? It sounds like apology, which means we're going to spend seven hours a day apologizing that we believe in the opiate of the masses, that we believe in this child's myth fervently. That's not at all, of course, what apologetics is. You might hear apologetics, and you might think it's a, a conference for husbands, that you can come and learn <laughs> basically what you ought to do most of the day. But it is neither of those things. Apologetics is the idea of giving a rational defense. The word in Greek was a term used for an attorney that would give an explanation for his uh, particular client about why he did not need to be prosecuted, why this indictment didn't need to turn into a guilty verdict. And so it was a rational defense of the innocence, if you will, of his subject. What I want to share with you today is why we must be committed to this. Now, that might be a bit of singing to the choir. You guys have taken an entire Saturday. You've chosen to be here. You obviously have some interest in this topic already. But let me reinforce the wisdom of your day and the wisdom of this particular investment. What's really interesting, by the way, just in this whole idea, we're not doing a conference on conflict resolution, but I don't want to miss my opportunity right here. The word that does come across in our language from giving a rational defense for uh, a, a topic uh, to our language, as we've already said, is apology. And so sometimes when you do something wrong with somebody, what do they expect you to do? Apologize. And what is the word we most often use when we apologize? I'm sorry. Now think about that word. If apologetics or apologia is a rational defense of your position, and when you apologize, what you're basically saying is, I'm sorry, the worst thing that we can say to one another sometimes is, well, that's okay. That's okay. Because it's not okay when we hurt each other, wound each other, and don't love each other, and treat each other with honor. I want to tell you this. If, if you have an opportunity to respond to a George Carlin, a Bill Maher, or your neighbor, and you're not ready... And you go, well, I'm sorry. And you give that apology. I'm going to make a case this morning that that's not acceptable. And in fact, the most loving response I could give to you when you wrong me or when you wrong the one who sent you to represent him and you stand before him and you give your apologia about how you started your life and you just go, I want to apologize. I was not good at apologetics. I'm sorry. The right response to somebody who does you wrong and says, I'm sorry, that is a declaration. It is, you know what? You are sorry. You're a sorry individual. You shouldn't have done that to me. Now, when you do that and somebody's apologizing to you, they go, whoa, Mr. Big Man, there. But what the Bible tells us to do when we wrong somebody is not just to throw on them, hey, I'm sorry. And if that's not good enough for you, man, that's your problem now. No. When we wrong somebody, what we're supposed to do is seek forgiveness, not just say, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? The Bible says he who confesses and forsakes his sin will find compassion. Well, let me just say what we're doing here today. In many ways, we are all confessing, I'm sorry, I'm not equipped to rashly defend this word of truth. And I'm not just going to say, I'm sorry, I'm a sorry individual, I'm not William Lane Craig, I'm not Ravi, I'm not Frank, I'm not Greg, and you got to go on and on throughout all our speakers today. Here's the thing, you've got to quit wishing they were with you at the coffee shop. And you got to quit just saying, I'm sorry, I'm not ready to serve you 
in the way that God wants me to serve you, if you know him, you've got to forsake. You've got to change. And so we're here today to say, Lord, forgive us that we have not studied to show ourselves approved as workmen who don't need to be ashamed, who accurately handle the word of truth, and who have studied to, to be ready to give an account when anyone asks us to give the hope that is within us with gentleness and with reverence. And so you are here today not just saying, I'm sorry, I'm a sorry individual, I'm not Ravi. You just got a bad draw on friends. So you're going to live in confusion and intimidation by secular media and comedians. You're here to forsake that as a way of life and a worldview. And so let's dive in. In the introduction to his book, Reasonable Faith, Dr. Craig quotes from a man who was at Princeton Seminary in uh, the early part of the 20th century. He really was um, speaking against or dealing with the encroach uh, or the, the, the advancement of liberalism, modernist theology that was beginning to compromise the gospel, the truth of the scriptures that had been held from the earliest days of the church. And what he did is he spoke this way to his peers. He ended up having to leave Princeton and founded his own seminary where truth could be preserved, Westminster Seminary. But here's what he says. We must have a profound belief, Jay Grisham Mocken said, in the pervasiveness of ideas. What is today a matter of academic speculation begins tomorrow to, to move armies and pull down empires. We're seeing that in our country right now. The idea of the new atheist, the idea that there is no truth, the idea that, that there are certain old world uh, principles that are oppressive and we need to evolve out of is beginning to take down an empire. And it's moving armies. But Magen continues. He says this, in the second stage, it has gone too far to be combated. The, 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 the time to stop it was when it was still a matter of impassionate debate. So as Christians, we should try to mold the thought of the world in such a way as to make the acceptance of Christianity something more than a logical absurdity. You see that? Our job is to make the acceptance of the Christian idea, let me say it this way, the acceptance of truth and the understanding of truth more than a logical absurdity, more than the fantasy of children or the opiate of the masses. This is what he said back in the early part of the 20th century, and it's great application for us today. I was recently communicating to Arbonne, and it was talking about the, the need for us to jump into the public square and into in a winsome, in a, in, in a loving way, with gentleness and respect, as 1 Peter 3.15 says. Um, Seasoned with salt, as it were, as Colossians 4, and 5, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 says. We must be ready to speak. And I, I shared with them this idea. I said, listen, silence is not an option. Careless words are not acceptable. And therefore, study is necessary. Let me say that again. Silence is not an option. We, it's not enough for us just to go, I don't know what to say, so I'm going to back off and shrink back. God has called us to step up. We are called to stand firm to act like men, to be strong, to for sure let everything we do be done in love. But silence is not an option. And careless words are not acceptable. So study is very necessary. This takes work. Uh, Proverbs 13.4 says this. It says that, that the, um, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. 
We can't keep wanting gifted men who have disciplined themselves to show up in places where God has had us show up. And because they're not there, go, oh, I just wish you could read that book or I wish you could go to that conference. No, the purpose of today is to equip those of you that don't want to have careless words or remain silent and also to serve and help and begin the dialogue with our friends that are here today who are in process and trying to figure out if there is truth that you can contend with that will bring transformation in life to you. Uh, A guy named uh, A.W. Tozier said this a while ago and has application to what I'm talking about. He says, the laws of success operate also in the higher field of the soul. Spiritual greatness has its price. Eminence in the things of the spirit demand a devotion to these things more complete than most of us are willing to give. So these men just didn't wake up and uh, find themselves ready to jump into uh, the highest levels of philosophical debate. No, they have worked at it. But this law cannot be escaped. It would be um, holy, um, if we would be holy to know the way, the law of the holy living among us, we must do this. The prophets of the Old Testament, the apostles of the New and More, and all the subline teachers of Christ are there to tell us how to succeed. The amount of loafing, though, practiced by the average Christian in spiritual things or study would ruin a concert pianist if he allowed himself to do the same thing in the field of music. The idle puttering around that we see in church circles would end the career of a big league pitcher in one week. No scientist could solve his exacting problem if he took as little interest in it as the rank and file of believers take in the art of being holy and giving a ready answer. The nation whose soldiers were as soft and undisciplined as the soldiers of the churches would be conquered by the first enemy that attacked it. Triumphs are not won in easy chairs. Success is costly. It cost you a day away from six games in my family. Cost you a day from your favorite college team that you won't have to be disappointed again when they lose one more time. It, it cost you one of the days that you've got some discretionary time. But success is costly. And I think you've invested wisely. The scripture talks about the fact that um, we are always to be ready. But there's a very confusing set of Proverbs in Proverbs chapter 26, verses 4 and 5. And it takes wisdom and discernment to understand how to apply it. This is what it says in Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. It says, do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. Verse 5, and if you're a skeptic and you say the Bible contradicts itself, I'm going to tell you it certainly appears to here. Verse 5, answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he may not be wise in his own eyes. So which is it? Don't answer a fool according to his folly, or answer a fool as his folly deserves. And what's that have to do with today? Well, it has much to do with today. There's two non-contradictory ideas there that at first blush might seem to be a bit contradictory. What we want to do on the first one, when we see Proverbs 26, 4, is when it says, don't answer a fool according to his folly, you'll be like him, is we're not to lower ourselves to become like a fool to answer a fool. Because as one wag said a long time ago, don't argue with an idiot because he'll drag you down to his level and beat you with experience. <laughs> so you don't become a child to answer a child. You don't find yourself when they say, that's not true. You go, yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. That would be a violation of Proverbs 26.4. But when somebody says something to us, when we, wanna, we don't want to pander to man's intellectual arrogance. We don't want to just enter into uh, 
empty words and endless arguments. But when somebody has an honest question, when somebody has put forth or posited an idea, put out a premise, it is our task and our job to, in a loving, winsome way, challenge that premise. Speak with them about that idea and the consequences of that idea if we so follow it. It says, answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he may not be wise in his own eyes. Foolish beliefs that need to be corrected. We must answer a fool lest he become a conceited fool. Now, all throughout the Bible, there's these classic verses. Um, It talks about things like this. It says that like apples of gold in settings of silver, so is a word spoken in apt circumstance. Um, He who gives a right answer, it is like a kiss on the lips. There, There are famous moments where you just wish you had this kind of mind to respond. One of the most famous groups of exchanges, and some of them are probably a little bit um, mythological. We're not completely sure that they all happen. We know that some of the comments that went back and forth in this famous battle of the social elite were uh, maybe quotes taken from others and attributed to them. But Lady Astor and Winston Churchill were two people that always were ready with an apt answer for one another and wanted to answer the other fool according to his folly. They were notoriously at one another's throat. One time when Lady Astor asked, uh, answered Winston Churchill, Churchill walked up there and said, what should I go to at the masquerade this evening? And she said, why don't you go sober, is what she said to him. <laughs> One time Lady Astor said to Churchill that famous quote, right, if I was your wife, I would poison your tea. And Churchill said, and if I was your husband, madam, I would drink it. One-to-one, right? Who's going to break the tie? Well, I love this one. This is famous. This is one that people think that Churchill borrowed or not, but it's still a great line. When he was at some event that um, members of England's elite and parliament were there, politicians, Astor, who was um, very much a teetotaler and very much against any drink, walked up to Churchill, disgusted at his cigar smoking and brandy drinking, and she said, and you, Sir Winston, are drunk. And he looked at her. And he said, and you, my dear, are ugly, but I will be sober in the morning, is what he said. (laughs) When you hear things like that, you go, I wish I would have said that. And then I would have had to apologize when I was sober and ask forgiveness if you're paying attention. But I, today, am excited that you're going to be a person who is equipped and enabled to have that apple of gold, to have that, that, that answer in a way that is a kiss on the lips. But let me just share a few things with you about why we must do this and what we must not think of today as an opportunity to create in our lives. First of all, we want to be individuals that do speak of truth and call people to truth. Why? Because truth exists, and we are to strive for truth. One of my favorite statements is is simply this, that if something is true, then no amount of scrutiny affects it. That's why the righteous are bold as a lion, but the wicked flee when no one is pursuing them. I'm not afraid of questions that folks might ask. One of the great horrors that has happened for so many generations, I think, in the church, is that kids were told that they can't ask questions. It's disrespectful, honey. 
to ask questions about creation and evolution and leave that in your little biology class and don't drag it over here. Don't embarrass the pastor with questions about Darwinism or dinosaurs. And so kids have learned very quickly that, okay, we're not allowed to talk about that here. And then they get to the college arena or maybe just with their friends or maybe even with some professor at the high school level, there are plenty of people that are willing to tell them what they should do with their questions. If something is true, then no amount of scrutiny affects it. We're always welcoming people here. We have something called the Great Questions class. We uh, invite folks to come. We tell them that not only will they not discourage us with their questions, they'll honor us with their questions. And let's get involved in civil discourse about any topic that they want. Because, listen, if this isn't true, the sooner we figure it out, the better for us. It's amazing to me, when you use the word faith, uh, that non-believers, in fact, I, I read a blog post not long ago where an atheist was talking to believers about how to commune with atheists. And he said, don't ever talk about your faith. Because we believe that faith is unreliable, untenable. Faith is what we don't want to do. We don't want to believe in something that we know is not true, and that's what faith is. Now, the fact that non-believers believe this is a problem, but the fact that so many folks who say that they've come to a saving knowledge of the Scripture and Jesus Christ, the fact that so many of us believe that faith is believing in something you know not to be true is tragic. Faith is nothing of the sort. It's the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. And we are certain of what we believe. As, as it's been well said by brighter men than me, Pascal said that, that, that we have a faith that doesn't uh, go against reason, but we do have a faith that goes beyond reason. In other words, there's nothing about faith that makes us believe in what we know to not be true. But it is supra-rational. There are certain things that we aren't quite able to put inside a math equation. But we can look at the preponderance of the evidence and we can come to understand those things which are true so we can continue to stand on our faith. But there is no shred of our faith in any of the hard sciences that has ever backed us away from the truth that we say we believe. There is no um, position that cannot be well answered in the soft sciences, the philosophy and metaphysics and the such. And it's our job to equip ourselves to be ready in all those arenas. I, I love to help people with some simple things. When, when, when folks give certain ideas, and this gets back to the idea of having a right answer, you know, um, professors love to pick on their, their, their young, zealous, untaught, unthought-through uh, students. The old story has been told of the philosophy professor that said, who in my room believes in God? Because we don't want to waste our time and such foolery and speculation. We're going to deal here with facts and reality. And if we can't touch it, if we can't taste it, if we can't hear it, if we can't see it, it is not there. And don't you drag that in to my world. And so he said, has anybody here seen God? No hands went up. Anybody here heard God? No hands went up. Anybody here ever touched God? then don't you drag him into my classroom. And when the professor got done, a young man raised his hand, and the professor said, yes, what would you like to say? I'd like, can I just address the class for a second? He goes, sure. And he walked up front, he goes, has anybody here ever seen our professor's brain? Has anybody here ever touched our professor's brain? Well, then I'm going to tell you our professor doesn't have a brain, and don't you be dragging that idea into this classroom. And he went and sat down. 
Now that's just a simple, funny, crazy little illustration that tells you sometimes these intimidating ideas that come upon us with a little thought, with a little training, will help us in the way that we answer others. One of the things that I like to do sometimes is just say, listen, you think that you have all knowledge and you have certainty that there is no God, or you believe that you can um, scoff at my ideas because you're wise enough to know all things. And I said, what if I told you I had in my pocket something that no human hand has ever touched and no human eye has ever seen? Now just think about that. If I told you that right now in my pocket I had something that no human hand had ever touched, and no human eye had ever seen, you would go, well, that is just crazy and impossible. How else would it have gotten your pocket? But it's an opportunity when I say this and share this, and I'm about to show you that I, in fact, do have something that no human hand has ever touched in my pocket, and no human eye has ever seen in my pocket. And if there's a possibility that something like that exists, when you're certain that it doesn't, maybe you ought to engage me in some other conversation. Just a simple, winsome way to get the conversation going. You curious what's in my pocket? Let me share it with you. Not that pocket. It's this one. Right here. Now, a human hand's touched that, right? And a human eye has seen that. But inside my pocket was something that no human hand had ever touched and no human hand had ever seen. Just a simple, easy way to get a conversation going. We're selling these in the back, by the way. Just like the Rangers game, six fifty for four peanuts, if you'd like them. Let's pay for this conference somehow, baby. All right? <laughs> but we can be ready. Simple little diversion. We know truth. And people need to seek truth. Listen, when Jesus crashed on the scene, Buddhism, Taoism, Confucianism, Platoism, the Platonic thought, all those ideas were firmly entrenched in society. And God said, there's something more I have for you that I want you to see. I want to bring clarity to what I've already revealed. And I want to show you what you must know. Because this is what will set you free. Truth exists. And we are to strive for truth. And we are to educate ourselves towards truth. This is a thinking man's faith. When God said, I want you to love me, he said, I want you to love me with your mind. There is no intellectual suicide necessary here. This is an important idea because um, we, we must know as we learn this stuff, though, that, that the information we're learning is not foolproof. Our goal in being here today is to not um, come up with uh, a magic wand or something to impress our friends or defeat our enemies. Apologetics is, is really the why we believe, and it should be a ready defense for us to give, but we also want to make sure that we focus on the what we believe. The why we believe is necessary, and it will help some, and it will um, um, remove some barriers and, and deepen others in some faith, but, but the why alone does not convert. There is still a necessity for God's efficacious grace to go to work. This is really the, the truth that is um, taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 18 and following. It just says, listen, you need to know something that this is not just an intellectual exercise. There's something more going on here. And so whatever you're doing today and whatever you're here, I want to warn you against the idea that any information you receive is a foolproof solution. It might lead you to this question, and if Christianity is true, then how come so many intellectual men don't believe it to be true? 
And I answer that question this way. For the same reason so many simple-minded men don't believe that it's true. Um, I, I, I call into evidence um, a, a conversation that I happen to be a, um, a, a witness to when Dr. Craig and uh, Lee Strobel and uh, several other men were actually with Christopher Hitchens. Right here downtown, it was doing a, a publishing convention and Christopher was in town and these guys were in town. They got together for a little roundtable discussion and they started to talk about the God idea. And it was supposed to be about an hour and a half discussion on whether or not God existed. And, and I, 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 I took notes. I went back. I looked at it. This is basically what happened. They, they asked Hitchens this question. The author of God is not great. They said, Christopher, is there any evidence that you could be given that would make you believe in the God of the Bible? And as Hitchens was so prone to do, I don't know if you remember what he said, Bill, but he looked and he said, in his little, you know, English accent, he goes, it it sounds rather closed-minded to say no, doesn't it? And then he went on to say this. He goes, well, maybe if there was a resurrection. Once I was sure the resurrection wasn't a delusion. But even so, I would still then look for a supernatural, I mean, a a naturalistic explanation for it. And so Lee Strobel rightly pointed out, so listen, Christopher, you've got a heavy anti-supernatural supposition to begin with that clouds almost all your thinking. And it went on, the conversation. At the very end, they gave their closing discussions, and Dr. Craig said this to Hitchens. He looked at him, he said, listen, Christopher, I have given you and these other men no less than 10 arguments, the moral, the biological, the cosmological, the ontological, the Christological, the testimonial. He said, I've given you no less than 10 arguments for Christian theism that are presented today, none of which has been refuted. So while you've been winsome and while you've been filled with stories, anecdotes, and generally pleasant to converse with, you're either completely unprepared to represent your position or you are unable. And he said, Christopher, as you know, we're going to be together again in another debate shortly. And I would ask you, and he said it very nicely, I would ask that before we meet again to discuss this, that you would do your work so that we can actually have a discussion and a debate. But I would say today that based on what you are able to bring, that atheism is both false and is falsifi- falsifiable, excuse me, and false. Hitchens gave no resistance to that idea. In fact, he went on to say the Christian idea is the only congruent and consistent explanation for the world that he sees that he was so disturbed by. But because he said, I choose not to believe that as true, I reject it. And so whatever you're here to do today, I hope that you don't see this as a weapon and as a foolproof and absolute means to impress your friends and defeat your enemies. Um, If you want to be a a serious leader in your community, specifically the community of faith, you are in the absolute right place. Being an apologetician, being a person who can rationally defend their faith, it's a requirement for leadership. This is what it says in uh, Titus 1.9. It says, you must hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, and you must be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. First Timothy tells us that, that we should aspire to be leaders and overseers. And you are not able to be a leader or an overseer until you have done your work to be ready to give a defense when anyone asks you to give an account for the hope that is within you, to contend once and all earnestly for the faith it's a requirement for leadership and please watch this it's a requirement for love 
The scriptures say this. If you're going to love somebody and you see them staggering to slaughter. I mean, I've mentioned George Carlin this morning. I've mentioned Christopher Hitchens this morning. And both those men were engaged in loving ways by people before that ultimate day of judgment came. But Proverbs 24, 11, and 12 says, Deliver those who are being taken away to death and those who are staggering to slaughter. Oh, hold them back. If you say, see, we did not know it. Does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? Does he not know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render to men according to his work or lack of work? You see, God expects you to step up and say it's the truth that will set you free. And when folks scoff at you, say, what is truth? That you might be ready with an answer. It's a requirement for leadership. It's a requirement if we're going to love. But I want to remind you, this information that we're going to share with you today is not ultimately the information that we want others to know of. It all points to and substantiates and allows us to grow deeper in our conviction that it's true. But if we go right to all the explanations without explaining the heart of who we are, if we trust in the explanation as opposed to leading with what we believe, we have made a tragic error. Paul, um, as you know, was um, uh, uh, zealous for the gospel. And Paul, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, was basically, as he set up his entire presentation of what it is that we do believe, said this amazing thing. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the, not one of, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul was accused of not coming to Rome for this reason. Hey, it's nice that the Gauls and the Celts, the Scythians, the barbarians, the uneducated of the world, take your little gospel, your Jesus myth, but Paul, you are afraid to come to Rome. You don't want to jump in here with um, the, the, the public forum and the debate and the educated of the day. Cicero, Seneca, the Caesars. You are afraid to drag your gospel here. And Paul said, let me just tell you something. Not only am I not afraid, I am itching to come. Because I believe it is the power of God for salvation. To all who believe. I don't care if you're in Rome or in Crete. Gang, one of the things that we must make sure that we do is be an individual that in love takes the gospel to people. Now there's two parts to that statement. I want to read to you um, a new Bible translation that I've been working on. There's always a new Bible coming out. And I'm, I'm working on one. I've done my first three verses for you. So, you know, a little work to go. But um, here it comes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. It says this. If I speak with the tongues of uh, Ravi and William Lane Craig, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of persuasion and can debate like Plato and know all mysteries and knowledge and can spit out complex philosophies so as to move worldviews, but do not have love, I am nothing. 
And if I give all my money to attend conferences and buy books, and if I surrender my body to be tattooed with Baker's Encyclopedia of Apologetics, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Whatever you're doing here today, can I remind you that our call, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and now watch this, a sincere faith, a faith that has been tested without wax, that has no cracks in it. So we're here today to educate ourselves that our faith might become more sincere. We might become more sure of the things hoped for and the things not seen. We're going to see some things we've never seen before. Evidences in logical discussion and premise and thought. Evidences in textual criticism and historical uh, preservation of the record. And it will help our faith be more sincere. But we are to contend once and for all for the faith. And the faith is this story of a God who radically loves us and has been pursuing us ever since we left him. And I want to make sure that today, that, that wherever you are, if you're here, I hope that you find yourself served. I hope you find yourself welcomed. If you don't understand the faith of which we speak and which I represent, we are really humbled that you would trust us with this day. You might be here with a heavy presupposition towards anti-supernaturalism. And we love you. And we're not going to love you anymore if you agree with us. But I want to tell you what it is that we believe. We believe that there's a God that has been pursuing us since the day that we left him. We believe that he is holy. And we believe that there is nothing that we could do that would ever allow us to be reconciled to him because we can't take now our perverted, broken nature and have it grafted back into his holy nature without compromising him. And our God has told us, I will not be compromised. There's nothing I can't do except stop being who I am because I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. But Todd, friend, because I do love you, I'm going to run after you. And I'm going to show myself to be both just and the justifier of those that I love. By stepping into your world, by taking on the form of a man, by being found in the appearance of a man, by humbling myself, become a bondservant, and becoming obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. I'm going to take your sin, and I'm going to lay it on myself. Even though you've gone astray and turned to your own way, I'm going to cause your iniquity to be laid on me, the visible image of me, my son, eternally existent in the person of the son on the cross. And I'm going to make him who knew no sin to become sin on your behalf, that you might become the righteousness of God in him. And if you just acknowledge your brokenness, your separation, your distance from me, you acknowledge my holiness, and you see the provision for your unholiness made, and you cry out to me for mercy, I would love to give it to you. For the Son of Man did not come into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. This is what we believe. That God loves us, and he sent his only son, that whoever might believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That doesn't mean when you die, you live forever. It means right now, you can be reconciled back to truth. That is the gospel. And whatever you learn today, make sure you learn the gospel. Make sure you lead with the gospel. And make sure your life is evidence of the God you've been reconciled to, who says he loves that world. Take the gospel with love. Don't be ashamed of it. I hope you're encouraged of the sincerity and the wisdom of that belief today. But love 
and preach. Let me pray. Father, I pray for all men in this room, all women in this room, that here, wherever we are, that what you would do now is just deepen our clarity and understanding of who you are. I pray that we would be bold in our questioning, and I thank you that you are eager in your answers. We thank you that there are men that have studied to show themselves approved, that we might learn from them, that we might think with them, that we might reason, and we would see things that we had never before seen, that it would help us deepen in our convictions or even understand fully your love. Wherever we are, Father, would you just draw us to you if you are there. There's not a man or woman in this room or that will listen to these messages that shouldn't be willing to say, God, if you're there and you are good and life can be found in you, reveal yourself to me. Lord, we thank you you've done that through Christ. We thank you you've done that through the resurrection. We thank you that you've preserved that record in your word, but we pray that you would reveal it even more to us today that we might know life as we know you. We pray this for our good and for the glory of the one who loves us. Amen.